Welcome to this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I'm going to give some advice on what to do if your kids are frustrated with bushcraft skills, I'm going to give some advice on quiet places to camp and forage in the UK, I'm going to talk about some fire lighting and fire leave no trace advice, and also what do I think of preppers, plus some bushcraft book recommendations. Welcome to this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Now this is a somewhat special episode. I'm in the woods as usual, but I'm in the woods in Canada. I'm in the boreal forest in Manitoba. I'm on a canoe trip. That's why there hasn't been an episode for a few weeks because um, I've been in Canada. So I'm doing this canoe trip on the blood vein in uh, Canada. It's mainly in Manitoba. It starts in Ontario, goes across the border into Manitoba and then down all the way to Lake Winnipeg. And um, before I left, I wrote down a few questions in my notebook that um, had been asked uh, that I could do an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley while I was away so that I can put that out when I get back. So sorry if you've been missing the show over the past few weeks. This is the episode recorded in Canada and these are questions that have been asked before I left. Now if you've asked questions in the meantime I will get to those in the coming weeks. I know I've got a bit of a backlog I'm sure. Um, there have been more since I've been away as well so I will get to those questions, keep the questions coming in. But without further ado we'll start with the first question. And uh, Ryan, um, Ryan asks what do I think of preppers? Doesn't it leave you overly reliant upon kit? Now, that's an interesting question. Um, now, I'm not a prepper. I wouldn't call myself a prepper, but there is this whole prepper thing going on. There's a lot of um, TV shows or some TV shows have focused on people who are preppers. Um, and there's quite a prepping movement in America in particular, but it's not just isolated to the States. Um, in terms of being prepared generally, prepared for adversity, prepared for unexpected occurrences, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's the reason why you do first aid training. That's the reason why um, some people maybe learn martial arts. It's the reason um, pilots learn how to eject from a fighter pilot. Things happen. And the point, I think, is that you train in things, in skills and disciplines and procedures and um, checklists. You train in, train in those things in relation to what you might um, come across in terms of your uh, outdoor life and in terms of your day-to-day -day life, depending on your focus, depending on what you think you may need to prepare for. Um, look at what the risks are that you face. Um, if you live in a hurricane area, you're gonna prepare for hurricanes or if you live in a tornado area, you're gonna prepare potentially for tornadoes. If you live in an area that might flood, prepare for that. I don't think that's a bad thing and, and to be honest, I think a lot of people do do those things. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I lived in North Wales and in the winter, um, the electricity lines would go through the woods. Um, and in the winter, the 
the trees would sometimes come down and they would take the electricity lines out. So my parents would make sure that we had some candles, that we had a gas stove, um, like a camping stove, that we had food that we could keep, um, that would we could get out, that we could leave the freezer closed, those sorts of things so that w without electricity you can carry on living in your home um, without too much trouble. That today might get called uh, be called prepping. In the past, it was just called you know just having some things in the cupboard just in case. And so I think it depends really what you're calling uh, a prepper. Um, I do wonder about people who have you know bunkers and lots of assault weapons and things because you know at the end of the day particularly if you make it known that you've got those things, you're gonna be a target. So I think it's, it's a two-way street. I think you have to be careful about making yourself um, some, the, the, the repository of all the useful food and equipment down the street. And I think that, that paranoia that comes out of thinking that, oh my God, I need to defend my, my store, that kind of fuels that, uh, that thinking. And so I think at one end of the spectrum, it might be a little bit unhealthy, but I don't think it's unhealthy to be thinking about what risks might I face um, that can take me out of my day-to-day -day life, you know, snow in the winter. In my car in the winter, I put blankets, I put a sleeping bag, I put a warm jacket, I put a Kelly kettle or a gas stove, I put food, drinks in the back of my car in case I get stuck when I'm out and about. And it doesn't have to be snowing when you leave, you can get caught in a blizzard, you can get, um, and even though I drive a four wheel drive vehicle, um, you know, there are circumstances in which you're gonna get stuck or snowbound and it could just be other traffic on the road that's stuck. You're gonna end up stuck. You're gonna to need to stay warm. That's just sensible precautions. So I think sensible precautions are good. Um, I think paranoia is bad. So I think it all starts with what are the likely risks and what are the risks that are gonna make a massive difference. So it might not be that likely that your house floods every year, but you might be living in a place where um, it can sometimes flood. Having some preparations for that isn't a bad thing. It's the same with, you know, what if the, the electricity goes out every other winter? Have some preparations for that. Have some fuel, have some food, have some candles and torches and spare batteries and blankets because your heating won't work potentially um, all of those sorts of things that's just sensible precautions and it's the same when you go into the wilderness what risks am i likely to face what skills do i need to have um, what precautions do i need to take when i'm in the wilderness all of those things it's the same sort of thinking it's just about being self-reliant and i don't think there's anything wrong with being self-reliant and some risks are quite long tail I, if you think about a distribution of risks, some you face every day, crossing the road, driving your car, getting on an aeroplane for a flight, those are risks that we take every day and accidents sometimes happen, um, whereas natural disasters happen much less frequently. We hear about them a lot in the news because we hear about an earthquake in a far-flung country, hear about a tidal wave or a forest fire, you know, those things are fed to us on the news all the time. but. Um, if you think about the people you know, um, how many of them have actually been in a natural disaster, it's probably fewer because um, the, the risks are overblown to a certain extent in the, in the media because the media is always concentrating on things going wrong. We like negative news, the media feeds us negative news, but the, the, the likelihood of it happening to you is relatively slim unless you live in a place where those natural occurrences are more uh, frequent, in which case you need to prepare for them. 
Um, in terms of preparing for the breakdown of civilization, well, um, I I'm not sure what preparations you could make because those sorts of situations are going to be completely fluid. If you look at any, any country where there is a breakdown in law and order, it, it's a complete and utter free-for-all sometimes. Other times it's, it's not. Um, other times particular powers take control. Who knows what's going to happen in a particular country, let alone if multiple countries had that going on at the same time. So I think at the end of the day, you need to be fit. Um, you need to have good basic first aid skills. You need to have good wilderness skills. You need to be able to uh, move quickly. Um, those sorts of things would be uh, quite universal in terms of having a good skill set and, and they're going to they're gonna have you well prepared for anything in your life. If you're fit and you're strong and you're uh, healthy and you've got good first aid skills, you've got good navigation skills, you can move quickly, um, you've got um, good camping equipment, I, I would say that is as good a preparation for any sort of fluid situation uh, as you can have. I think having massive stashes of food gives you quite a fixed plan. Um, and if you've got to get from A to B to C, um, maybe you can't do that. Maybe you have to be more flexible than that. So I'd say flexibility is a big, um, is a big thing to have. And if you're, if you're genuinely concerned about um, what's going to happen to you in your day-to-day -day life, I would just say stay flexible, have good general skills, be fit, um, be aware of, of your surroundings, and don't be too reliant upon equipment because as i say if you if you spend thousands of pounds or thousands of dollars on lots of equipment bury it in the ground what if you can't get to that um, and yes there are different ways of dealing with without having things stashed in different places and what have you but i think just being flexible if you look at if you look at any um, historical situation where there's been a breakdown in law and order, whether it's because of natural disasters or whether it's because of revolution or anything, um, people are not really able to take a lot of stuff with them. So um, have a few things that you might be able to take with you that are important and that are going to help you out in lots of different situations. Um, and you know your classic example is you know soldiers on the run, um, you know escape and evasion survival tins, escape and evasion survival equipment from the Second World War. Those are people who were thinking about having to move quickly, um, not be over overly reliant upon equipment, and be able to um, be able to get to where they can get to. You know you can't always get to where you want to get to. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of the prepping. Uh, people are maybe a little bit fixed in what might be possible and uh, particularly in North America there, there's, there's an emphasis on weapons and maybe rightly so because lots of people do have weapons but you know that's kind of outside of my remit as a as an outdoors instructor but I would say generally just to be prepared for for a situation is have uh, if you're if you're trained in um, and experienced in difficult situations in the outdoors, um, if you're fit, if you're used to undergoing hardships of bad weather, sleeping rough, um, having, uh, having to rely upon natural 
resources, having to rely upon what you can find as you go, if you can navigate um, without an app on your phone, um, if you've got good first aid skills, if you've got a good awareness of your own physical abilities, if you understand fatigue and dehydration and all those sorts of things. They're very universal skills and I think if you end up in a natural disaster, if you end up in the middle of a revolution or a breakdown society, those skills are going to stand you in good stead in any of those situations. But frankly, personally, it's not something I focus on particularly. Um, as long as you're fit and strong and you're good in the outdoors and you're good in urban environments and you can look after yourself, I think that's, that's good preparation and keep a flexible mindset. Don't have too fixed a plan. And I've talked a lot about that because I'm thinking off the top of my head. I hadn't thought too much about that beforehand. Um, but that, that, that would be what, what my advice would be and my thoughts. Um, Jonathan asks, where's the best place in the UK for food, water, shelter, and where best, or oh, sorry, where least likely to be bothered by other people and have freedom? Um, short answer to that is Scotland. Um, that's your best bet in terms of going and finding a place where you're not going to see many people in any given day. The Highlands of Scotland, but of course you've got sporting activities going on up there. You've got country sports, you've got shooting and stalking and those sorts of things going on. But you're not likely to see many people particularly once you get away from the central belt of Scotland and up into the Highlands. Also, there's plenty of places in, um, in and around England that are less well frequented. Now, clearly the, the national parks um, are popular, particularly in summer months and school holidays. But if you go to the Lake District outside of those periods, if you go and do a hike in the Lake District in October, when the weather can still be okay, um, but every, all the kids have gone back to school, people have gone back to work, finished the summer holidays, the holiday season's over. You could, I've had some great hikes in, in, in the Lake District at that time of year when, you've hardly see, when you hardly see anybody. Um, and then there are other parts of the UK that aren't tourist magnets, but have really nice countryside. Um, so up in the up in Northumberland, in Kielder Forest, for example, um, there's lots of places you can go where you can walk um, and not see many people for days on end. Um, uh, I would just avoid the really obvious popular places, find some green, relatively empty parts of the um, parts of the map and, and head there and explore. Um, in terms of living off the land, if that's what you're talking, let's have a look at the question again. Where's the best place in the UK for food, water? I mean, foraging, there's lots of good foraging in places in the UK, but in terms of actually living off the land full time and making a journey, that's very, very difficult. You need a very specialized skill set to do that. Um, you need to be used to be going out without food sometimes as well. And it, it's extremely difficult to do that um, over most of the UK now simply because in places where you might want to forage it's owned by people um, that you, where you need landowners permission really to get the best food have a look at some of the other articles on my blog about foraging finding places to go and practice your bushcraft links will be in the show notes on my blog people um, I've had a few criticisms recently that I don't put the links in the show notes. I do put the links in the show notes. The show notes are on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. If you're watching this embedded on some other website, if you're watching this embedded in, on, on YouTube, they're not going to be there. Follow the link to my blog, find the relevant episode of Ask Paul Kirtley there. Show notes, links are all there, as well as the audio version of this and the video version all on one page. That's where you'll find the show notes, just in case there's any confusion about that. I can't put links under YouTube and under Vimeo 
and in other places and on my blog, it just takes too much time. So the central repository for all the information is on my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk. Find the relevant episode. It's easy to find them on there. Um, so in terms of peace and quiet, yep, Scotland is great. Um, you're not going to get a huge amount of foraging done in the highlands though, particularly above the tree line, um, because there's not a lot there. But in terms of open hills, in terms of wind in your hair and not seeing many people, that's a great place to go. Clean water there, great camping, um, freedom to roam around pretty much anywhere. So depending on what's most important to you, um, top recommendation would be Scotland otherwise seek out some other parts of the UK that are uh, if you really want to focus on your foraging that are going to give you rich pickings in terms of your foraging that that would be my recommendation okay next question Sean asks have you ever worked with any outdoor education bushcraft schools in Canada uh, do you know any recommendations cheers um, well, Sean, I haven't worked with any bushcraft schools in Canada. That's quite a timely question. Um, I didn't choose it specifically because I knew I was going to, to, to Canada. I actually just went through Twitter and Instagram, found, found the questions that were outstanding, wrote them in, in my notebook, came out. That happened to be about Canada from somebody in Canada. Um, so, Sean, um, I haven't worked with any bushcraft schools in Canada. The main one that springs to mind is Karamat. Um, who had Morse Kahansky working with them for, for many years. And that's a good uh, school, has a good reputation. And that's one I would look at there in Alberta. I would I'd recommend looking at them in, in the first instance. I know distances are an issue in, in Canada, but other than that, I don't actually know of any that I could recommend to you. So uh, apologies to that. I haven't worked with them. I've worked with outfitters. I've worked with, um, lodges and, and settings and particular places in Canada but not with other bushcraft schools. Um, there's, there's, there's a good opportunity I think there if, if Karamat are running the courses that they've always run to go and have a, go and have a good course with them um, and of course pick up Morska Hansky's uh, book and have a read through that as well because that's all very relevant to the, uh, the environment that you're going to be finding yourself in being a, a resident in, in Canada. Good question, Sean. Next question, Gavin. Gavin Henry asks, how can I get my son more involved in bushcraft? He loves the woods, but has no patience. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I, I think kids generally have um, a lower attention span. I don't know how old your son is, but um, they, they tend to have a lower attention span than adults and I know you have got into bushcraft relatively recently or at least in the last six months you've been active on Twitter sending me messages quite a lot Gavin so you seem to me the type of person that um, once they're into something they're really into something you know the questions you've been asking me you've been going out and practicing things i can see that you're somebody who really wants to get their teeth stuck into things not everybody's like that and maybe your son isn't and maybe you just have to um gently more gently bring him to the to the fold in terms of showing him things and showing him things at a pace that he's comfortable with um, and if he's becoming impatient um it's perhaps you know 
perhaps that's a family trait perhaps you're a little bit impatient and you want to get the skill you seem to want to get the skills quickly you seem to want to learn a lot quickly that's not a bad thing and I don't know whether that's coming out of impatience or whether that manifests itself in impatience in you but I think you just have to go at these things at a pace that is natural to you and maybe the pace you want your son to go at isn't the pace that he wants to go at that might be part of the issue I don't know I've only got one tweet to go on Gavin um, but equally you can be encouraging and if he if he gets frustrated then just you know don't don't force him to, to carry on with that just let him have a go at something else or try and explain it to him in a different way so that he he feels more comfortable with it so you know you might have said right okay this is how you do it son um, and he's tried to replicate what you've you've shown him and he can't do it and he's finding that frustrating um, if you can find a different way of explaining it or a way of breaking it down into smaller steps so that he can achieve a, a smaller step first so that, that builds his confidence that would be a way to do it rather than going the whole hog and just failing because you can't make the whole hog um, again I don't know the exact circumstances but I would say just take it gently don't force him to do things if he's getting frustrated try and find him something else to do and then come back to it break it down into little steps so that he can achieve those little steps and be satisfied with that that builds his confidence he's not going to get frustrated with it and then you can go from there and then come back to things when when he's ready um, a friend of mine has a, a daughter and they take her to the climbing wall and she's only five sometimes she's really into it and she's climbing right at the top of the wall um, other times she just wants to play with the little dollies at the bottom of the wall and pretend they're climbing but that's that's the way it is with kids um, you can't force them to, to be of a particular mindset if they don't want to be. And I think if you then put that little girl on the climbing wall and say, get up to the top like you did last time, she'd get frustrated with that. So again, I don't know the situation, but I would just say, just gently encourage you do things, help him break it down. Um, don't expect too much of him. Um, also tell him not to expect too much of himself. Say, tell him that these things take a while to learn and, and see if you can have a dialogue around that rather than, um, him getting frustrated with not achieving what he's expecting or expected to be achieving at a particular point. That's that's the general advice I can give you, Gavin. If you've got more specific situations, if you've got a specific skill set that you want some help with teaching him or introducing him to, drop me an email and I can I can try and help you with that. Okay, thanks for the question. Next question. Lost my place. In my notebook I've been writing my diary while I've been on the trip okay uh, Woodland Dweller asks on Instagram what one book or books would you recommend people read regarding bushcraft and why um, so on my blog I would say first off there is a list of recommended bushcraft and survival books um, they're all good books I would recommend you have a look at that and go over to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk. And in the top menu bar is a, a, a tab called resources. Click on that, you'll get a drop down. There'll be recommended bushcraft and survival books. There are some recommended foraging books and there's some recommended tree and plant identification books and field guides on there as well for plant and animal sign and that sort of thing. Um, animal tracks and sign and trees and plants and bushcraft and survival books. Um, but in there, I would say, if you had to choose one book, um, 
it's a difficult one because each book has its own qualities. Um, many books are targeted on a particular area or a particular zone, particular um, you know temperate zone or northern forest or, or what have you. But I would say Morse Kahansky's book is a classic book. It's probably it was originally called Northern Bushcraft and it was later uh, titled Bushcraft, and that really is the first um, Northern Hemisphere bushcraft book that was published in recent times. Um, I don't class, um, for example, Lofty Wiseman's book as a bushcraft book. It's a survival handbook and it's a very good survival handbook and it was one of my Bibles when I was growing up. Um, but in terms of bushcraft books, the first Northern Hemisphere one really was um, Morskohansky's Northern Bushcraft, later renamed just Bushcraft, and that was meant to be a foil to Richard Graves' um, Bushcraft book, or, which was originally a series of pamphlets, which was later put into, into a single volume. Um, he was Australian, um, that's an Australian book, and so Moore's book was a sort of meant to be the Northern Hemisphere equivalent of that, but it does very much focus on the Northern Forest and the Northwoods because he was based in Alberta. That was his area of expertise. But I think if you, you know, if you spend any time in Canada or, nor or Northern North America or Scandinavia or Northern Europe and into Eurasia, that book is, is a real one that's worth spending some time with. And it applies to a lot of the UK as well. Now, th there aren't going to be um, all the species in there, but the types of species, the coniferous trees in particular, the willows, um, the uses of those, um, the birches that are in that book um, and his uses of them, it's all the same, it's all universal and um, there's a lot of detail in there, um, it's very very good and I would say if you read that book and understand the techniques in there and have practiced the techniques in there, um, certainly all the basic firecraft, the bindcraft, all of those things that are in that book, then that will stand you in very, very good stead anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. So that would be my number one, my number one choice there. Um, and have a, you know, you, you, you've got many a long dark nights reading that and many a summer day practicing those skills and many a winter uh, day out in the in the snow practicing the uh, the winter skills in that book as well. So that's, you know, there's a, there's a wealth of information in that book. Um, and then have a look back at some of the older books like, um, Kephart's um, Woodcraft and Camping book, that's one that's worth looking at and uh, um, some of the old Nesmuk Ness is always a good read as well. Um, and then also, you know, high up on my list, um, it's not one that would be, um, it's not a practical book in that sense. Um, you know, Moore's Kahansky's book is a very practical book, but a more philosophical book, I would have a look at uh, Thoreau's Walden. Um, Again, that will give you many, many nights of reading, lots of things to think about, lots of things to think about in terms of your place in nature, your, you know, our place as people in, uh, in modern society. And it was written quite a long time ago, but it's still very, very relevant. So Henry David Thoreau's Walden and Morska Hansky's Bushcraft. Um, if you've got those in your, in your rucksack um, on any trip, that will keep you more than occupied with, with reading and stuff to think about and practical material to, to work on. So those would be my top recommendations and then have a look at some of the old woodcraft and camping books. Go onto Amazon and search for woodcraft and camping, bring up some of the old books, um, Kephart, 
and and and, and uh, Nesmuk and those and the likes. They're they're well worth having a look at too. And most of those books are recommended on my blog, as I say, at paulkirtley.co.uk. Next question from Michael. Um, Hi, Michael. Good to hear from you again. Um, Michael asks, I find it difficult to leave no trace when having a campfire on a meadow. What is your advice? Avoid this at all. Take away turf. Um, how can I do this without a shovel? Well, that's, that's a pertinent question. Michael, because I do see fire scars in grassy areas, um, it doesn't have to be in a meadow, there's plenty of places where I see vegetation damaged. Um, the first thing I would say is if you can, try and find a place where you are not going to damage the vegetation with a fire. Um, if you're having a fire in a, med in a meadow, as I understand it, and I know um, English is, your English is very good, but I know it's not your first um, language. So if you mean in the middle of a field, um, you're clearly going to have to bring in that fuel in from somewhere to have a fire maybe um, have a fire that closer to the source of the fuel where you can find somewhere like I am now you know where I'm sitting I'm in the middle of the woods and a lot of it's quite low-lying loamy soil some of it's quite wet and um, there are poplars behind me there's jack pine over there there's um, uh, there's uh, black spruce and there's some uh, balsam fir and um, there's lots of moss around here and lichens but there are some bare areas of rock and if I was going to have a fire here I would search out the bare areas of rock and have the fire there partly because I don't want to, to start a forest fire I don't want to spread fire into the root systems of the trees but also I'm not going to damage the small vegetation that's that's the understory of the forest and it's the same same goes for grassy areas try to um, try to avoid that if you can. Now, if you have to have a fire in a grassy area or an area where you're going to damage, uh, potentially damage um, plants, the best thing you can do, and it is a best, it's not necessarily a no damage option, but the best thing you can do is to dig out an area of turf and not just directly where you're going to have the fire, but also where around where you're going to have the fire so that the heat of the fire doesn't singe the material, the, the, the grass, for example, around the area. Um, Keep the fire as small as you can. Um, you know, if you just need to boil something or cook, then keep it as small as you can. And ideally, you use a trowel for that. Now, on this trip that we're doing, um, we've got a trowel with us. It's in our toilet kit. Um, we've got toilet paper and a, a cigarette lighter and alcohol hand gel and a small plastic trowel in a dry bag that is our toilet bag. And we use that in camp. Um, that's the signal that, that somebody's gone to the toilet, gone into the woods, we agree on an area, um, but also we have a trowel that if we, need, if we needed to dig out an area we could, we could use that. So a small plastic trowel is quite light, you can get some good robust ones these days or a, a folding metal one is, is another type that people carry. People often carry those trowel, little trowels for latrine use, um, so that's something you could also put to, to, to use for having a fire and that would be one recommendation. Using a digging stick is pretty difficult. You're going to damage the ground quite a lot. You could, I guess, dig around as much as you can and then tear the turf up. That's going to be quite tricky. It's, it's possible, though. It's going to be quite, quite time-consuming. If it's just a quick fire, um, maybe it's not worth your while doing that. Um, but if you really do need to dig the turf out, dig around with a digging stick. Um, by that, I mean just take a stick that's a few feet long, about a metre long, three feet long, um, chisel the end and 
then dig into the ground around the area and then pull the turf back. Try and roll it so that you keep it, keep the moisture on the inside, set it to one side and have your fire and then put that back afterwards after you've made sure that you put plenty of water into the ground and made sure that um, the charcoal is dispersed. Now charcoal will encourage, you know, the nutrients from charcoal are good for some plants and gardens. Gardeners do sometimes the red squirrel there. I don't know if you can hear it. There's a red squirrel chirping in the trees there. Um, some gardeners will put charcoal into their soil, particularly in heavy soils, but it doesn't always benefit all, all plants. So um, spread that around put the turf back and hopefully it will take root again and but as I say it's not necessarily a comp it will immediately be leave no trace because it'd be difficult to see that that turf has been removed that there's been a fire there but you know you then need that grass to, to grow back again now thankfully if it's just grass we're talking about grass is a pretty resilient um, family of plants um, you know they're one of the most populous plants on the planet there are grasses on every continent pretty much and they grow quite prolifically where they do grow so over time that will likely come back but if it's a sensitive area if it's a wildflower meadow with other species I would try to be avoiding having a fire there unless absolutely necessary and of course you can get these little stoves little honey stoves and similar these days that pack down where you can have a fire raised up off the ground and that's another option um, take a, a piece of aluminium sheeting that's it's thicker than aluminium foil that you would use for cooking in the home um, the sort of thing that you would use for windshields um, and you can place the stove on top of that to stop any embers dropping through but you still need to have the fire raised off the ground because similar to those disposable barbecues when you see people going into the park and having a disposable barbecue they have the disposable barbecue they light the they light the charcoal they cook their their food um, and then they take it away and they leave a scorch mark on the grass which takes some time to recover you don't want to be doing that you need to have it raised up away from that so there's a separation there's an air gap between the actual combustion and the heat of that combustion and the vegetation underneath so those are my pieces of advice avoid it if you can try and find a more suitable spot if you have to remove the turf and if you can have a device that allows you a small fire that separates it from the ground and doesn't damage it in the first place hope that helps michael right and i think that ends this episode of ask paul Kirtley. so thank you very much for watching um, I'm coming towards the end of this trip. I've recorded it towards the end because I wanted to make sure I had enough battery. Um, I've been recording uh, the proceedings of this expedition that we've been undertaking. I will turn that into a film, um, so keep an eye out for that. It's not going to come out immediately. They, these things take time. Um, but um, I'm looking forward to getting back uh, home and putting this out for you to watch. Um, we've been the only communication we've had is satellite phone, which we haven't used the whole time that we've been out. We just carry this for emergencies. Um, but uh, it's been really nice to be uh, switched off and unplugged for a couple of weeks. But um, I'm glad as well to be able to present this new episode of Ask Paul Kirtley to you from the fantastic uh, northern forest, the boreal forest of Canada. Absolutely fantastic environment to be in, an absolute privilege to be traveling here and to be camping here. Um, lots of stories to tell from this trip, which as I say, you'll see in a, in a video at some point in the future. Um, but for the meantime, I hope that episode of Ask Paul Kirtley was useful to you. Please keep asking the questions. Um, they tax my brain. Some of them I have to scratch my head a little bit, um, like Ryan's question about preppers at the beginning. Um, hopefully that was useful. 
Um, some of the stuff is more directly what I do day to day, but I think it's useful to stretch your, stretch your thinking and ask questions around um, what I do as well. So keep your questions coming in, keep them varied, keep them wide, keep them interesting, uh, keep them quite short as well. Twitter and Instagram work really well, hashtag AskPaulCurtly, that works really well. I can find those quickly and like I did before this trip, I just search Twitter for AskPaulCurtly, find the questions, wrote them down. Same with Instagram, find the questions, wrote them down and I can bring them with me. Even here where I've got no connection to the outside world, I certainly don't have a smartphone or a computer. Um, I've got a camera and a lot of batteries and a notebook, which is a really nice way to be for a few weeks, just to be uh, in tune with nature, travel with the rhythms of nature. There's still some really cool dragonflies flying around here. It's been quite warm and uh, there's uh, a few mosquitoes around, less so now, it's been cooler this week and the mosquitoes are dying back, but the dragonflies fly around eating the mosquitoes, which is absolutely fantastic to watch. It's very helpful. I, I need to train a fleet of, of dragonflies to take with me on these expeditions that I can just have flying around, I can unleash to eat all the all mosquitoes. But anyway, thanks for watching. Catch you on the next episode. Take care.